So would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews for what has now been, I think, the 18th time that we've opened this book together and I've walked us through a passage of Scripture in it. The book of Hebrews, if you're not used to using a Bible, the page we'll be at is 1007 in these black Bibles that are around you. And we'll be looking at the big chapter number, 10, and then the last few verses of that chapter, the small numbers are 32 through 39. We're going to try and finish the chapter 10 this week and then begin the famous Hall of Faith next week of chapter 11. A few weeks ago, I told you all a story downstairs as we were having breakfast that I was playing basketball with some men in the area. And after we were playing basketball, we were talking about a variety of things and they found out I was a pastor. Sometimes those conversations go really well. Sometimes you never know what to expect once you let people know that I'm a pastor. You know, it kind of just changes the dynamic of the room very quickly. And uh, we had an interesting conversation. And at one point, one of the men just turned over and said, so tell me real quickly, in two minutes, like what, why should I listen to God's word? And what do you preach? Like, what is it that you get up and do every week? Like, give me a sample two-minute message. I mean, what, what an incredible opportunity of sharing the good news about Jesus, right? But as the conversation went on, I found out that they started then sharing, uh, after I gave my two-minute gospel explanation, what sort of sermons they liked to hear. And, and there they went around, and most of these guys were Catholic, and they were used to going to different Catholic churches around the area. And, and the sentiment was pretty much the same. You know, one of them explained that most Catholic priests have never been married. They don't have children. And they, he's like, they, they've never lived life. You know, you can just tell the way they preach and the way they talk. It's just out there. They, they've never lived. And then this one gentleman jumped and he says, exactly. And there was this one priest who his wife passed away. And so he had been married and he had had children. And so he had lived life. And he gave one of the best sermons I've ever heard. It's like he knew. And on and on I went, listening to these guys, not really telling them what I thought, because I already told them what I thought about what should be preached at church. I gave them the gospel of Jesus. And a lot of them basically wanted tips for how to live. They wanted encouragements for how to be a better husband or a better father. Um, just kind of whatever felt needs they had. And the other thing they wanted was the sermon to be about 10 minutes. And I was like, man, I am failing miserably. I don't know what you all think when you hear that. Should I have thought, oh, duh, Phil, that's what people want? 10-minute sermons on how to be a better husband and father. Why am I going through books of the Bible like Hebrews and talking about the wrath of God? Oh, man, have I missed it. I should have been polling the peoples and asking them, well, what is it that you guys are looking for in a sermon? Because I have been somewhere in some clouds far off in my theology apartment room, whatever, ivory tower, and I'm missing that, oh, these are what the people need. This is what they want. Friends, the book of Hebrews has been densely theological. We've, we've been in it for 18 weeks now. And if you have not observed that, it's because you have been, in fact, sleeping and not listening. This is a heavy book that goes through different sections of Old Testament concepts and show how they're fulfilled in Jesus. But I want to make two simple points this morning. As the book turns at this point, 
Really, all of chapter 10 from verse 19 and following is a summary of what's been talked about, a final or an extended warning again that we looked at last week, and then he starts getting very practical and very down to earth. And so I want to make two comments about that. Number one, theology should be personally applied, and secondly, theology should be powerfully applied. So first, I want us to look at how theology should be personally applied, that it is in fact incredibly practical and therefore leads to powerful results in our lives. So look with me at this chapter 10, verse 32 and following. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. First, theology is personally applied. I think this is a very simple observation, but one that we must pay attention to. Notice the way the author, who's giving them this long treatise of theology, personally knows the people he's talking to. He knows what they're going through and what their lives are like, what their lives have been, and what their lives are currently facing in their trials and struggles. Notice in verse 32, he says, recall the former days as if he knew about them in their former days. He says that they were enlightened, meaning that they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They were potentially Jewish people, and that they were enlightened to the truth that Jesus is the one true Messiah that all the Jews have been waiting for. So they were enlightened, and this word enlightened actually is written in a way where it says, like, light has been shown upon you. Something that God does to people. Not that they came to the light, like, I was enlightened because I... I, I reveal, I would knew something. You know, I'm so smart. No, in fact, they were enlightened by God's Spirit. God came down on them and He enlightened them. Maybe it's similar to the picture in 2 Corinthians 4. Familiar with that picture? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 The God of this age has darkened the minds of all the unbelievers in the world. But when the message of the gospel is preached, God, who said light out of darkness in Genesis 1, says light shine in your hearts when you see the image of the face of Christ. They were enlightened. He knows this about them, and he knows that after they were enlightened, look at this next word, they endured. They endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The word endure here gives the picture of somebody who is taking a stand on a battlefield and not running away when the battle gets 
literally what the picture of this word is giving here. And they took their stand. After becoming enlightened by the truth of the gospel, persecution came, potentially from other Jewish people that said, you, you can't believe in Jesus as the one true Messiah and final sacrifice. We're going to kill you, throw you in prison. We're going to steal your stuff. We're going to do terrible things to you. And they took their stand. They believed Jesus was more precious than the persecution that was coming. They didn't run away. That other word that you see in this verse, endured a hard struggle. Some translations say a contest because the word that you'll hear from the Greek language has like the same root word for athletics, athletico kind of root in it. It's a word that talks about a contest or a race or some sort of athletic event. So put these pictures together. They, they took their stand, and they ran their race, and they did not falter. They finished through that persevering trial without throwing away their faith. So this is what happened at one point. And then it says, sometimes, though, in verse 33, knowing them, he knows that they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Another interesting word picture is given here with this word publicly exposed. It's the word to be brought up on stage. And it's the word that was used in theater language to take actors and musicians and put them up on stage in front of all the public. But in fact, this word was used so regularly as a use of humiliation that it became known for a public spectacle of humiliating somebody through persecution like the people hanging on crosses outside of the city, that when you walked into the city, there they were, hanging naked, humiliated, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And then you see sometimes, in verse 33, they were partners with those so treated. What's so interesting about that word, partners, is that that's the word that we have for fellowship, any of you guys ever use that word or hear that word in Christian lingo? Well, we're going to have some fellowship. And we mean like we're going to go and watch the Bears game together around some pizza. Like friends, that's not fellowship according to the New Testament. This word fellowship is the word that we're so partnered together for the common cause that even if it means I will endure suffering because of that partnership, so be it. That's a really different picture than just hanging around eating pizzas together, isn't it? Chatting and talking? No. Partners. Enduring suffering together. And then it says, he knew that they had compassion on those in prison. I don't know if you realize this, but we live in the 21st century. And our prisons are like mansions compared to prisons around the world or even in the first century. Like, it's really nice. I'm not saying prison is a great place to go and that you should try and do something illegal so you can go to prison. But just in comparison, we need to realize that prisons were awful, terrible places that if people didn't come and visit you and give you food, they didn't provide food or television or internet or all these sort of amenities that we have in our prisons today here in the United States. I think the, the best comparison I can think of was that about five, six years ago, I spent time in the, one of the 10th poorest countries in the world, Malawi in Africa. 
And in Malawi, I was able to visit two places that I will never forget the, the picture of like, this is just dreadfully terrible. The first place was the hospital. And it was the best hospital in the capital of Lilongwe of this whole country. And it was like, this is the best state-of-the-art stuff they got. And friends, you would never once think to go there. It was, it was just awfully dirty. There wasn't care. There weren't nurses. You just saw people laying on the ground with open wounds and sicknesses and didn't have enough beds for people. You saw that people had to come and visit and bring food. There was no sort of bad hospital food. Friends, you would love to have the bad hospital food here in the States in a long way. And then I went and visited and actually didn't just visit, but I was preaching through this whole trip. And we were going all over the, the different parts of the city. And I went and visited a prison. And the conditions, again, just were breathtaking, breathtakingly awful. And that's kind of what you would think prison should be. And similarly, this idea that if, if people didn't come and visit you and take care of you, you would just die of starvation. They didn't care. So here you have the companions who are partners. They're, they're in fellowship here. I mean, imagine this as your small group, your church family. They love me so much that because of the cause of Jesus, they were thrown into jail and they didn't just leave me in there to starve to death. They came and visited me. They had compassion and they cared for me. And they did it at the risk of their own lives. Because, friends, if you're getting thrown into prison for being a Christian and then you spend time caring for those Christians, and it might seem like, why are you doing that? Is it just because you're a family member? Or is it because you're a fellow brother or sister in the faith? Do you see they're putting themselves at risk at this point for even going to the prison to care for these people? And then lastly, look at this final word that we see about the description of these people. Verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They were joyful. Joyful about accepting the plundering of their property. That's a verse that you might want to read and then, wait, wait. Did I read that right? Joyfully accepted? No, no. Sorrowfully accepted. I think there's some sort of misprint here. And then you go back and you read original manuscripts and Greek translations. You're like, no, that's actually the word. Kara, joy. They were joyful for their stuff getting stolen and taken away. Does this make any sense at all? Well, in fact, it should. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Rejoice in that day, for so they treated the prophets. Acts chapter 5 sees the apostles that were counted worthy of suffering for Jesus' name, and they were joyfully rejoicing in all of these realities. This isn't strange to the New Testament. It's strange to us. Joy for our property being taken away. So these, these are who these people are, and the author knows them personally, knows that they've walked through these things, and knows that they're going to experience more of them. That's why he says, I know what you need. You need what? Verse 36. You need endurance. You need to press on. You need to keep fighting the fight of faith. You need to keep trusting in Jesus. Hold on to your confidence. There is a great reward. 
Even in the verse 39, you see he personally encourages them by saying, I'm confident that we are not those who shrink back. Right after seeing in verse 38, the warning of those who do shrink back from the faith, those who do give up on believing in Jesus, God will have no pleasure in him. But no, that's not us. We are not of those people. We will persevere. This is a simple observation. He knows these people well enough to recount all of these details of their life. But friend, I ask you, who knows you well enough to speak God's word into your life in the moment of trial and suffering, difficulty, when you need encouragement and perseverance? Do you have anyone that's saying, friend, you need endurance. This is what you need. And then they lay out God's word to you. Do you have discipling relationships? People here in this church, this is part of the reason why Embassy Church has been started from the beginning. We're here and we exist, not so that you can just listen to sermons on a weekly basis and have them generally applied, but so you can have personal relationships with pastors and elders and friends and other church members who are partners with you, not just around the TV and watching football games, but around your faith in Jesus Christ, and they speak into your life personally. I know you. I know that this is what God's word would have to say to you. Friends, I think this is something that the church in America lacks desperately. I think this is one of the reasons why there are a need for new churches or improving existing churches. Because we miss these simple, obvious points. How can you be a part of a church and have no idea who your elders are? That doesn't even make sense. How can you have someone preach to you week in and week out and they have no relationship with you? But yet we call that a successful church. Because the pastor has thousands upon thousands of people, but doesn't know half of them, even half. This should not be. And even if the pastor can't know every single person, there should be a group of men who are called elders who serve as pastors collectively, a whole plurality of them who are working as hard as they can to know each and every member, pray for them by name, and make sure that their needs are cared for spiritually. And when appropriate, regularly speak God's word personally, individually into their life. That's the vision for our church. Because that's what a church is. Not because that's like, oh, here's, here's a new idea. Good concept, Pastor Phil. Because this is all we see. How can you make sense of the New Testament without people who know God and his word and then lovingly care for people? Every single letter in this Bible that you have in front of you in the New Testament is written to a specific people. And there's a relationship from the person that's giving the letter because God's word is spoken personally. It's not abstractly, it's not just some book that God wrote that says, well, let's just print a book out and then let people read it and figure out. No, it was personally applied. The theology and concepts of the New Testament are spoken to people in real life and real issues. So, when was the last time you recalled Verse 32, remembered your former days. When was the last time you had a conversation with another church member and you went over the story of how you came to faith and recalled God's grace in your life? 
This could encourage us. In fact, this is why we do this every single week just about downstairs before the service starts. Why is it that we have testimonies of how people came to faith shared before everybody? Number one, so you can get to know them. Because church is not a collection of individuals attending an event weekly, but a family of partners who are collectively together serving and loving one another. And if you don't know those people, you can't love them. But secondarily, because when somebody recalls the former days of how they were walking in sin and selfishness like Allison shared this morning, but then God enlightened her and gave her truth and poured out her spirit on her, what a wonderful thing to hear on a weekly basis. So I don't know what you're doing on Sunday mornings and if you can make that on a regular basis, but friends, just know that Embassy Church elders, whether it's a breakfast format or a lunch format or some other event or format, we're going to consistently and regularly give you some sort of space as a church to get to know the other people in the church and not say, hey, attend Sunday morning church, listen to a sermon, pray some prayers and sing some songs and then leave and don't talk to really anybody because, you know, you've got your fix for the day. We want nothing to do with that version of Christianity. So we're going to do our best to just, here, breakfast on Sunday morning, lunch after church Sunday afternoon, create space for the people of God to know one another and speak God's word into each other's lives and recall how God has been gracious and good to us. That's why we're doing those things. And I would strongly encourage that if you can make it, make it a priority. It will help you persevere through the difficult days this is what the author knows they need, and so he's encouraging them to do that. That's point number one. The theology of God's word is personally applied. Secondly, the theology of the New Testament is powerfully applied. Here's the interesting thing about, I think, this section of Hebrews. It's obvious that he knows these people and what they need and what they're going through. So why in the world has he spent 10 chapters talking about Jesus the whole time? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about what you would say to somebody if they did open up their lives and say, I'm going through a great struggle with suffering? What would you say? What do they need? This author, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, realizes that what they need is a robust, full-on vision of Jesus. They need theology and who God is and what God has done for them, so that way they don't waver in their faith in the midst of that great suffering. Ten chapters of theology and warnings and a few sprinkled exhortations, but a lot of Old Testament and a lot of explanation. And I would imagine that for some of us, especially some of you in this room, you might struggle with that idea. You might be like those guys I mentioned at the earlier part of this message, that, you know, what I really need is some help, some tips, some how-tos. Don't spend all this time going slowly through a book like Hebrews. That's not useful for me. I've got real struggles, Pastor Phil. Okay, so Jesus is better than angels. So what? Oh, so Jesus is more superior than Moses. Who cares? I've got debt and money issues. Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath rest. Well, I need some rest right now. I am tired, really tired. Just physically, I need to get some sleep. 
Can you help me learn how to sleep better? Jesus is the great and final high priest. Okay, sounds good. But I've got some marriage problems right now. I don't need priests. I need a new spouse. That's what I need. Can you help me with that, Pastor Phil? Why did you spend all that time talking about Melchizedek? And on and on we could go. You guys following me so far? That's what he decided to do. Do you see what I'm saying here? People that are suffering terribly. And he says, get to know Melchizedek. What? Why are we talking about Melchizedek? I'm struggling. I'm suffering here. A hard struggle with sufferings. What is this all about? He wants them to see that the reason why they did endure in the first place, because remember, they did endure. They've already done this. He's not asking them to do something they haven't even done before. They have gone through a, a difficult time with suffering, and they did fight through it effectively. But how? Verse 34, because you knew you had a better and abiding possession. Better and abiding possession. Do you realize what chapters 1 through 10 has been about for the last 18 weeks? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better and abiding. Jesus is better than the angels, and he's better than the Moses, and better than the priests, and he's better than any other god or idol or whatever else you could offer. Jesus is better, and he lasts forever. That was what chapter 7 was all about. That's what the whole Melchizedek point was about. He lives eternally, forever, and abidingly interceding for you. My point is that he cannot say these words if he does not have the first 10 chapters. Like, we can't just start the book in chapter 10. That doesn't make as much sense. But now that we've gotten to the end of chapter 10, and we've seen how Jesus is better and abiding, better and abiding, better and abiding, he says, don't you see? That's how you persevered through the first trial. So do it again, because you have a better and abiding possession now still. It's so incredibly practical when you think about it. If your theology is not practically helping you through difficult trials, sufferings, and your everyday life, then your theology stinks. And it's not the theology of the Bible. Jesus is the great reward and the better in abiding possession. And so you can have joy even in the midst of the hardest thing, which is suffering. And you can have joy in the midst of whatever else you're struggling and going through. So let me try and connect the dots. If they're not connected yet, how can this be practically powerful in your life to know that Jesus is a better and abiding possession? Well, ask yourself, what are you currently finding joy in? What are you currently finding satisfaction in and pleasure Let's take the normal list of things people find joy and satisfaction in. Family, sex, romantic relationships, food and alcohol, materialism, fame, health, fitness, etc. We get the gist? Now, when we make those things our ultimate joy and not Jesus Christ, then we are settling for lesser possessions. And when those things can be taken away from us, like your health, like your romantic relationships, like food and alcohol and materialism, and when they're fleeting and very short-lived and not abiding pleasures. I mean, how many of those just last for a second? 
a moment. And you've given all of your time and energy to try and obtain this possession, this thing, and you want it so badly. And the temptation was lying all along. Oh, it will satisfy. And it lied so well. And you believed in that lie. And you went and fell for whatever that thing was to think, yes, I'm going to wrap my life around this. And it lasted for how long? Abiding forever? And it wasn't that kind of possession. So now notice what happens when you don't have a preacher standing before you and telling you, okay, friends, sex before marriage is wrong. Sex outside of marriage is wrong. So stop having sex before marriage. So stop it. Okay, you're doing it? Okay, stop. I'm addicted to it. Well, then stop. That's not what the New Testament teaches us to do. It says You're finding joy in a possession that is temporary and pleasures that are fleeting. Find your joy in a better and abiding possession. The issue is not whether or not you should have joy. It's whether you should have short-lived fleeting joy or you should have everlasting amazing joy. And when you take hold of the everlasting amazing joy, then you have no room for the small fleeting pleasures and they've properly put themselves in the place that they should be in your life. They don't dominate. You don't get addicted to them. You're not enslaved to money, materialism, or fame, or health. Do you see how this works and how incredibly practical, knowing that Jesus is all these better and abiding things. If you have a theology of Hebrews chapter 1 through 10, 19, if that's tucked away in your your heart and in your brain and in, in your mind and you're preaching yourself these wonderful truths, then when small little joys walk along, I'm not enticed by that. I'm so full. I already have a better possession that lasts forever. And my joy is full in these things. So friend, I ask you, what are you having joy in? What what is it that brings you joy? And can it be taken away? Can your joy be stolen from you? These people, their material possessions was not their joy. Because when it was stolen from them and taken from them, they still had joy because they still had a better possession. See the play on words here? You had possessions, but because of a better possession, you still had joy. Look down at chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith is it impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There is a reward So don't throw away your confidence. There is a reward. Turn the page over to chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Friends, do you see the play on words again? What did we just read? They were publicly exposed to reproach 
Here you find that word again talking about Moses. Here you see this contrast between wealth and treasure. And then you see again this idea of a reward. And Moses could have chosen to say, look, I'm never going to identify with the people of Israel whom I was born with. I was born as an Israelite. But instead, I could be one of Pharaoh's servants and sons and then eventually take over. And I could have all the riches and wealth of Egypt. And he chose to identify himself as a Jew and therefore be mistreated because he did not want to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sins as much as he wanted to enjoy the better reward Jesus offers. This happens again in chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear, look at that word again, reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. Better city, better reward, everlasting joy. It reminds me of Psalm 16, 11. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy and pleasures do you know how long they last? Anybody know it? Forevermore. Isn't that exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying? You have a possession that is better in its quality. Fullness of joy. That's what this possession is. Full joy. Full possession. And it's, it's, it's quantity and quality. It's, it's full joy and it's forevermore abiding forever. Sanctification will come in your life free from sin and free from whatever it is when you start to realize that you need to replace temporary fleeting pleasure with eternal long-lasting pleasure. Let me give an example of this, how this works in a story. I heard this story a while ago. I think it was maybe over 10 years ago. And I still think this is one of those things that every time I read it, it's like, oh man, chills run down my back. It's a story of a man in Kenya who was at the head of his tribe as like the, uh, the top dog elder. One day, this man, his name was Joseph, was walking along a hot, dirty African road and met some people who shared the gospel of Christ with him. Then and there, after hearing the gospel, he accepted to receive the Lord as his Savior and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and it was transforming his life, and he had so much joy. The power of the Spirit, as it was transforming his own heart, started to give him the desire to return back to his own village and start sharing the same good news with all the members of his local tribe. Joseph then went door to door and told everybody about the cross of Jesus and the salvation that it offered. He was expecting that in the same way that he had his face enlightened and joyful, that these two, these people would be lit up. But to his amazement, they not only didn't care, they became violent. The other leaders of the village seized him as he was teaching and telling them to believe things that their entire tradition of a village had never thought. And he was introducing ideas they'd never heard. They held him to the ground while women started beating him with strands of barbed wire. They dragged him from the village and they left him in a bush to die. Joseph somehow managed to crawl out of this hole 
that he was lying in after days of passing in and out of consciousness. And he found the strength to get up and he'd start to wonder about this hostile reception that he received, these people that he'd known and loved his whole life. He decided, man, I must have told the story wrong. I must have said something wrong about Jesus. So he rehearsed in his mind what exactly he told them when he went door to door, and he decided he didn't say it incorrectly. So he decided to go back and share his faith once more. Joseph limped into a circle of huts and began proclaiming Jesus and saying, Friends, he died for you so that you could find forgiveness and come to know the living God. And he would plead with them, broken body and all. He was grabbed by the men of the village and the women beat him again, reopening the wounds that just started to heal. And they dragged him from his unconscious state and left him again to die. Now, to survive the first beating was remarkable, if you could only imagine But to live through the second was just a miracle, and he did. Days later, awakening in a wilderness, bruised, scarred, and determined to go back, Joseph returned to the small village. They attacked him before he even had the chance to open his mouth. They flogged him for the third and what would probably be the last time. He again spoke to them about Jesus as he could before he passed out. The last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him stopped beating him and started to weep. This time he awoke, not in the bushes, but in his own bed, and realized that his perseverance to endure struggling, suffering, and being beaten was the very tool that God used to save the entire village to Christ. That's remarkable, isn't it? To think somebody would choose again and again Suffering, not unlike this passage of Scripture that just read to us. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property? You decided to choose to have compassion on those people in prison? Why would you do that? Stay at home, it's safe. Safety is, of course, the number one value of all Americans. It's highest top dog. We should never do anything that would put our lives in danger, would we? Joseph didn't think so. Because he had a joy and a love that was greater than his own life itself. Friends, have you remembered what God has done for you in your past and recalled the former days? I wonder if some of you sitting here this morning can think back to when you first came to Jesus. Did you have joy unspeakable that you're like, I hear that story about Joseph, and I could imagine if I was put in those shoes, I might do the same thing again because I was just on fire for Jesus. But are you remembering now what God has done for you in his son, Jesus? The story of Joseph is just a faint shadow of an even greater story of a man named Jesus. Do you realize that this chapter 10 ends with all of these interesting word pictures that I gave you? People who should stand in the face of battle. Get get that picture in your mind. The enemy is pressing in. It's getting difficult and strenuous. Captain, should we run? No, stay, stay. Hold your ground. Endure. Being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and having compassion on others. Turn with me to chapter 12. 
the bookends of chapter 11, which are all about this idea of faith. Faith in a future and better reward. Faith in a better possession. Faith in a better city that will last forever and ever. If you have your faith in those things, it produces powerful, great effects in our life. That's what chapter 11 is about. We're introducing that idea here at the end of chapter 10. But see the bookends. Look what he says Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that so closely entangles us, clings to us. And let us run with endurance. Now here we see those two pictures that we just saw, the athletic imagery of running a race. And then this endurance, the same exact word at the end of chapter 10, this standing your ground. So run this athletic event And finish your race to the end. And endure. Stand your ground. But the question has to be, how? How do I do that? How do I stand my ground in the face of suffering? He doesn't leave us for guessing. Just keep reading. Look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, and there's our word, stood his ground on the cross. And he despised the shame and the reproach and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did not run away. When the enemy was pressing in, he stood his ground and stayed on the cross. Think of Jesus as the soldiers pressed in that night when he was praying in the garden. A coward would run But the Son of God stayed and told Peter, put that sword away. I must die. He was made a public spectacle, right? That word, bring up on the stage and be put in front of everybody, hung naked on a cross. That's what we just read in chapter 13, wasn't it? So therefore, just as Christ was hung Outside of the camp, suffering and bearing reproach, so we too should bear that reproach as we follow Jesus outside the camp. And Jesus had compassion, sympathy with us, suffering with us. And look down from heaven and see us in our world of sin and suffering and say, well, I hope you guys get it figured out. He walked alongside of us and suffered with us. Everything that you're being asked to do at the end of chapter 10, to endure to have compassion, to even endure in the face of public spectacle and suffering. Jesus Christ already did for you, so you can do it. But notice the other word that connects the two passages together. He did it how? The same way we saw in verse 34. Joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. How did Jesus do it? By the joy that was set before him. He had faith in a future greater reward that if he would endure, there'd be something so much better on the other side. Friends, that faith is what I call each and every one of us to this morning. It's what this passage is calling us all to. This whole book, in fact, is about have faith like Jesus. Joyful, enduring faith. That regardless of what you're going through right now, whatever sins that are being tempted before you, have faith that there is a better and abiding possession in Jesus Christ. That possession is Jesus Christ. 
lay hold of him, look to him. So I hope this morning, unpacking the idea that Jesus is better in abiding has some sort of substance behind it. Because if this is your first week, then you have missed out on 17 weeks and 10 chapters of why Jesus is better, better, better. There's supposed to be an oomph to those words when he gets to chapter 10. That's the key. Do you have it? Do you have the key? This is what unlocks the power of Christ's Spirit working through you so you can do amazing things even in the face of the most difficult circumstances. The key is a better and abiding possession. I pray you'd lay hold on it this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for Jesus Christ. Thank you for this book that you spoke these words to us, every single one of them. We need all of them, and we thank you for them. We thank you that Jesus Christ is not just our example. He's also our substitute. He takes our place that when we have been faithless, he remains faithful. We thank you that Jesus, that when we lack perseverance, he persevered to the end. We thank you for Jesus that when he didn't give in to sin and tempted in every way that we were, he persevered. Thank you, God, for this amazing possession that we have in Jesus. I pray that Embassy Church will be a group of people that this week will recall their former days when they came to faith, telling stories of one another, how Christ saved us, changed us, and also pointing each other to Jesus, even in the midst of great trial and suffering. Lord God, we thank you for all of these gifts in Jesus' name. Amen. Do on a regular basis, according to the commands of Jesus, remember or recall not just our former days when Christ enlightened us and saved us, but we should remember and recall the former days when Christ died on a cross, gave his body and his blood for us so we could have faith in him. So friends, we're going to do that now. We're going to remember. That's what this Lord's Supper that's being passed around, this bread and this cup. One of the reasons why we do this every week is so that way Maybe the sermon didn't connect, but hopefully the rest of the service does. Remember Jesus. We want to remember him every single week. Are you getting tired of remembering Jesus? Like, why do we do this every week? Why do we keep thinking and talking about Jesus? I hope not, friends. I hope that every week you see that cup, you see that bread in your hand, and you realize Christ did this for me. How could I not then go forgive and love and give of myself to others? So if you're here this morning and Jesus is your great possession, an abiding possession, then celebrate with us in taking this bread and cup. If you're a visitor here this morning or you're not sure what it means to be a Christian, then just know that this is for people that want to hold on to Christ as their better and abiding possession. And if that's you, then I'd just encourage you to take that bread and cup and eat with us. Let's do that now. We'll remain seated as we sing and as the supper gets passed around.